The reading is from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another. Uh, sorry, honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual further, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay any evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Good morning. Hey. Um, it's great to see you all here this morning, and it's great to be looking at this part of God's Word. Um, a few weeks ago, actually the first time the elders met with Luke, who you'll meet today, um, and we were talking that, you know, about this particular Sunday. He said often on a, on a Sunday where um, it was an annual congregational meeting, he would um, preach a sermon that restated the vision for his church. So that's what's 
Uh, that's why we're looking at this particular passage today uh, with view to what's going on in the life of our church. I think there's a lot, uh, a lot to be learned from this passage, a lot to be encouraged by, um, and a lot to, to think about um, from this. So keep it in front of you, but I've also prepared it so it'll pretty much come up on the screen throughout the talk today. Where do I aim this thing? Am I controlling that? Anyway, how about we pray? Father, we give you great thanks that we can be here, that we can be meeting in this way. We give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, for his work on the cross, for the power that has over sin. Lord, for the love that we see uh, expressed in that. Lord, that he would take our place, that he would become sin for us, even though he didn't have any sin. Lord, that he would... uh, Give us his perfect life in place of our sinful life. Lord, that he would die that death for us. Lord, help us this morning to to understand that and and to understand it more deeply, to be more deeply convicted, to live out of that truth. Be with us by your spirit in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. So you just saw a picture flick up there. This is... Uh, In Katoomba, uh, you can kind of see the three sisters at the back there and the two brothers kind of are in the middle view. Um, This is a bit of a a wider shot of what um, what you can see there. Am I controlling this or are you guys? I've got it? Okay, sweet. Um, That's a nice panorama of of that area. I think this is called Echo Point. And while we were down at the Katoomba conference in January, on a really hot day, we were kind of escaping for a couple of hours to go sit in the cinema um, I literally, that's all I did. I, I fell asleep while, what it, while the rest of the guys watched the movie in the cinema. It was really nice and air-conditioned in there. But it was a really hot day, and so we, we just quickly stopped. We thought we should go and check out some of these sites. I don't know if you've been there, but kind of when you get there directly across, you look at this huge uh, gorge, and off to the west, you see more gullies and gorges, and in the east is the picture of the three sisters there. And on another of the days, I actually went up to another spot called, I don't know if I get a picture there, this is going all over the place, up there, um, up near Blackheath, which is uh, further to the west, and we went out to a place called Pulpit Rock, and you go right out on this rock that's kind of right on a, I don't know, I don't, I don't understand the geological terms enough to be able to describe it to you, but you kind of follow this track all the way down, and you kind of nearly... 360 surrounded by this massive gorge around you. Sheer cliffs on one side, and it's kind of like cliffs as far as you can see. And even early, one of the mornings that we were there, I got up early and went down, and you could see like the, the shadows all moving across the as the sun hit different parts of it. And you could see the fog rolling and lifting and kind of being above the clouds in that sense. It's a pretty impressive place. And when you realise that down here at Katoomba, we're looking at this um, gully, whatever you call it, and then up further at Blackheath, and that actually those things are all connected, it's a pretty amazing thought. It makes for what I would say is a pretty grand view. And I want to use that as a little bit of a parallel for what we're looking at this morning. So we're going to dive into the book of Romans at chapter 12. And by chapter 12, there's 11 chapters of other stuff that's really important that's already been said. And at the beginning of chapter 12, 
actually bases everything it's saying on a grand view that has been shown in the first 11 chapters of the book. This gr- it might be helpful, actually, to think of the book of Romans, when you read it from start to finish, a bit like climbing a mountain, and at each point, stopping off at a different point and, and going to a lookout and looking out at another aspect of the gospel. As Paul takes the, the message of the gospel and just explains it, expands it, brings it to light for the people that he's writing to. It's like every little place is a, is a stop off or a, or a lookout. And it's been said that of all the places in the Bible where the Gospels explained, the book of Romans is probably the most succinct or the fullest description. The rest of it, we kind of, we, we understand it as we read it all uh, a bit from here and a bit from there, and we can kind of draw it together. But this is where it's set out in our Bibles as one kind of big, long argument. So what is the grand view? What is it that Romans tells us? Well, in a nutshell... It begins by explaining the problem of sin. I don't expect you to be able to read all that, but it, it's how humans have exchanged, exchanged in sin the truth of God for a lie. And it's a bit like we've pushed God away or we've pushed God down. We've suppressed the truth like a dirty Queensland footballer grinding the face of his opponent into the ground. That's why that picture's up there. That's like how we, in our sin, Treat the truth of God. We, we want to grind it into the ground and push it away. And this part, of, as Paul starts in the book of Romans, he talks about how widespread sin is, that it affects every aspect of every person's life throughout all of history. And because it's affected everything in such an invasive way, invasive way, he says that everyone is deserving of death in judgment. And then he takes this beautiful turning point in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. He explains that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And from this point, the letter keeps going through layers of thoughts on what such justification actually means. That word right in the middle of, of that, um, that verse there, all are justified, justification. He unpacks what that actually means. And each time, each step in the climb up the mountain, Paul keeps coming back to this concept of grace, that everything that would justify us comes because God has shown grace to us. He doesn't ever call us to justify ourselves. We are made right with God completely by the grace of God. See, everything that could be a barrier to us being justly declared the people of God has been graciously dealt with by Jesus at the cross. This big word justification is the way of describing that by the gospel, a person is declared to be righteous. They're they're declared to be right in the eyes of God, without fault. There's a simple way of remembering it, just as if I had never sinned. Or there's probably a better way of saying it, just as if I'd always obeyed. That's how God treats me when I have faith in Jesus. 
Of course, this comes to us by Jesus on the cross as he is punished for our unrighteousness. It's not that that's just forgotten about. It's actually dealt with. And we receive his righteous status. And so by the time we get to chapter 12 of Romans, where we're going to get to in just a moment, Paul has shown how God has justified us freely as a gift of grace out of God's own mercy toward us. So what we need to understand for the context of what we're going to look at is the love of Jesus for each of us that he would take our place and that he would bring us into a freedom to now know and live with God as our Father. That is the grandest and most breathtaking and frankly most incomprehensible thing that we could ever gaze upon. And so if you look just the verses immediately before what we're going to look at in Romans 12, this is how Paul sums it up. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To have such a grand view of what God has done in Jesus for people, for us, that's what we've got to keep in mind because we're going to look at this this next verse, and he's going to say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what you've just seen, in view of what God has done in your life, we, are, we need to worship, he says. How could we not, is what Paul says. In view of such great mercies, he says, give your whole life over to the God who has done this for you. He says, be transformed by it. He's saying here, let it draw you out of the patterns of this world. The patterns of being given over to futile thinking, to, to pressing God out of our lives. Draw yourself, let it draw you out of that and be renewed to see what God's grand and awesome picture of a redeemed, of a redeemed people. A people who have been set right by him and for him. These first two verses of Romans are so rich. For me personally, they're verses that have countless times been spoken into my life and that I've gone to to speak into other people's lives because they're so succinct in what they say to us about what to do every day with the gospel of Jesus. It's the logical outworking of what Jesus has done for you. Our Bibles say here it's true and proper worship, and that's a good way to think about it, but it's an even bigger idea than that. It's saying this is the only logical outcome for what Jesus has done for you, and that is to completely surrender our whole lives to him. Now, the purpose statement for our church has been to seek to grow in our love for Jesus, each other, the community, and our world and to help others to do the same. And when you think about that and think about what Romans 12 says, how could it be anything different to that? 
That's a whole of life picture of loving Jesus first, of sacrificing all our other loves to the one who first loved us. And then from there flowing into a love for our sisters and our brothers in Christ and then loving those in our community, those that are lost without Jesus and then recognising that we're part of the whole mission of Jesus in the whole world. It's a grand vision to seek to love Jesus, each other, our community, our world, and to help others do, our, do the same. But, again, it's the only logical way to respond to Jesus. Paul is urging them in this part to that end. And the, the context of the Romans is that they were actually a divided church. This uh, graphic that I'm going to put up here is a bit of an overview of the whole book of Romans. And if I zoom on this part, it kind of gives a little picture of what's going on in the Roman church for Paul to feel the need to write this letter to them. See, what had happened was the Jewish Christians had been forced away by Emperor Claudius for a period of time. They'd been forced out of Rome. They couldn't live there anymore because they were Jewish and they'd been kind of in some kind of exile. But after about five years, they've come back. And as they've come back, the church that they've come back into has changed. It's not changed in what it believes, but it's definitely changed in its flavour, in the way that it operates, the way that it does things. And basically, in their absence, it's changed so much that it's become distinctly less Jewish. So these Jewish Christians, who are Christians, but they're Jewish in their culture and their heritage, have come back in there and it's caused this big division. It's caused this division. They can't get along with each other anymore. And I think that's, that helps us to understand why Paul writes with that language. Therefore, I urge you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to not think about your divisions here, but to have a view of God's mercy. I urge you, the urge is that they would give themselves over to God. See, Paul in his letter never sides with either party. He, he doesn't say, these, these guys have got it right and you've got it wrong. He actually is saying here, let God and his work be the thing that will restore your unity. It's not an urge to just try a bit harder. That wouldn't make sense. Because everything about the gospel is the fact that God has worked it out. God has worked it and worked it out. The urge here is to look at God's mercy and act accordingly. Now, I recall pretty much the big growth that happened in my faith was when I realized this. It was sometimes in my late teens, but to really understand that grace means that God has freely given me what I don't deserve. And what he's given me is everything that I need to be right with him. It's nothing that he hasn't provided for me to be right with him. And so for that reason, I'm free to live for him. It brings me into a freedom. I was in my late teens, but when it clicked, it literally made stuff fall out of my life. Things that I held on to and cared about, when I realized that I was holding on to them and caring about them for the wrong reason, they fell out of my life. That hymn that we just sang, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, it nails this truth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look at his wonderful face 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As a church, we have a vision. We have a vision of people, firstly, growing in their love for Jesus and helping others to do the same. Growing in your love for Jesus and helping others to do the same. Growing in your love for Jesus means just this, having a grand view of what Jesus has done, of his love, of his mercy shown to you in his actions, of loving that more and more. It's actually about letting the things that you love get reordered so that it's not your favorite hobby or your favorite football team or the favorite person in your life or the thing that you, uh, you know, like to eat the most or whatever it is, it, it's having Jesus, the thing that your heart longs for, growing that love, having a grand view of the grace and mercy that's been shown to you. Never forget that without Jesus and his grace in your life, we're at best, from some of the um, analogies made in the Bible, or some of the descriptions, we're at best wandering aimlessly through life, and at worst, we're an enemy of God, facing his right judgment and punishment. And we should never forget that God first loved us and reached out to rescue us. Romans 5, 6, he says, You, at just the right time, when you were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. The only logical response is to let God's grace continue to work in your life. Not just accepting that by grace you will be saved, but that also by grace you will be transformed in your thinking, in how you see the world. And so the next section really begins to flesh this idea out. And today we will look at a few parts of this. And in the coming weeks, Joe's going to be preaching for us and he's going to continue on with some of the stuff that is said in chapter 13. But just for today, we're going to focus on these other verses and we need to keep all that stuff in mind. The first beach mission or SUFM that I went along to, I went along when I was 12 and I wasn't a Christian at that stage. But I had just been through the Anglican Church's first Holy Communion thing. Um, the Anglican churches around here are pretty uh, Anglo-Catholic, so a lot of those Catholic traditions and stuff happen in the Anglican Church as well. And having been through that, I thought I was legitimate. I thought that that's what it meant. And I would um, talk about this at SUFM. I'd talk about how, yeah, I go to church and I get in the robes like the priest does and I wander up the front in the procession like the priest does and I help him dish out communion and, and that kind of thing. And I had no idea who Jesus was. I had no idea why he died. Sin to me was just the bad stuff that other people did because I thought I was all good because I was doing these kind of things. See, Paul's first point is that God's grace empowers us for transformation. We need to learn what God's grace is. I looked down on the other kids at SUFM who weren't churchgoers because I thought I was better than them. Even those that were there and who were genuinely responding to the gospel. My view of what they should do now was come and put these funny clothes on and walk along up the front with me. 
Grace causes us to realize that we're not better than anyone else. And that's why it says there, we should have sober judgment about one another. Now, it's been heartening, and this has been said a few times today and in the, in the past few weeks, it's been heartening to see that people have, in this new season that, of, of um, church life, how people have stepped up to speak, to serve in new ways and with increased time commitment. It's been super encouraging. But while it's been heartening, we need to remember that as things change, there's some traps that we could fall into that we need to be aware of. See, we might be tempted as we start to do more of something or do something new to all of a sudden believe that we're experts in how to do it. If you're given the opportunity to serve in some new way, it can quickly be a temptation to think that you all of a sudden know best. They wouldn't have asked me if I, if I didn't know what I was doing, would they? Or we might have a kind of jealousy. We might see others stepping up or being asked to do things or promoted into doing things and be thinking, why haven't I been asked to do that? How come they lead that group? I could be much better at that. Now, I thank God that I can't actually think of this happening anywhere at the moment. But we need to be aware of it because the temptation will be there. See, verses 4 to 8 cast a beautiful vision of what the church actually looks like when it's operating as it ought to. But it's all informed by those kind of pitfalls that our, our sinful hearts can take us toward. See, what these verses tell us about is a community of believers who live to serve one another. And to think that we're going to be a community that lives to serve one another, doesn't that take a renewing of the mind? To really see and believe that we belong to one another, that we're not just individuals who live our own lives and pop in and out of the church. We're brought into a fellowship with one another. Verse 4 tells us that we don't all have the same function. We exist united in our diversity. Verses 6 to 8 spell out some of these things. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list that we see both the practical and the spiritual all mixed in together. Have a look at them with me. Verses 6 and onwards. Paul says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is to prophesy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And like I said, it's not an exhaustive list. If you go to other lists in the Bible, there's different things listed and we can think of new ways that, that we can contribute to the body that weren't even invented at the time that this was written. And the point is that they're all mixed in together. It's not like it's, it's said if you're teaching that that's more important than something else. It, the way that they're all melded in together shows us that they're all acts that come out of a life given over as living sacrifices, like verse 1 tells us. Now, to call some things practical and some things spiritual will be helpful sometimes. 
But it's not a distinction that needs to be made. All things are done in view of God's mercy. And when they're done in view of God's mercy, that's when they're spiritual acts of worship. I'm not sure if you've read the reports that are going to be presented at the meeting today. I took some time earlier in the week when they got emailed out, um, and I had a look at the reports. But the one that Gail's written from the Secretary of the Committee of Management, it reports to us that our church attendance since we've been meeting at the school has been up 20%. Did I get that fact right? Yeah. That's not just people becoming more regular. That's growth. And that's an encouraging thing to hear. And while some of that is people joining us who were already Christians, they've moved to town or they've come along for for another reason, the fact is that there are people who are just coming to learn the faith for themselves, who are discipling. They're becoming Christians. Now, here's my point. Some people's gift is to serve in really practical ways. And it has taken a lot of practical service for us to start meeting here and sustain meeting here. But what has it resulted in? It's resulted in people coming to know Jesus. Whatever gift is given to you, you've got to exercise it. And it doesn't matter if you're not the evangelist. It doesn't matter if you're not the teacher or the preacher. It doesn't matter if you're not the one that, um, what else does he say? Anything in that list. Whatever way God has gifted you by his grace, we have to serve each other with that gift. We have to serve each other in this spirit. And how could we not use these gifts in view of the great mercy that God has shown to us. And so then we get to verse 9 and onward. And Paul goes into the stuff that everyone should be doing, not just according to your gift, uh, and everyone should be doing this. Have a look now at verse 9 to 13. This is all about the way in which we form that one body. He talks about sincere love for each other, about hating what is evil, about loving what is good about honouring each other. That is, honouring each other as God's child. That's how we will see each other, as our brother and sister in Christ. Whatever gift they've been given, serving with zeal and fervour, he says, sharing with each other as we have need, and showing hospitality. This is the stuff of Christian community. This is the showing Jesus' love to others bit of our vision statement. Again, this is the transformed life of worship. We worship God by having a community like this. And don't forget, we don't force this community. We don't just like try a bit harder to make this community happen. We've got to be intentional, but it will only come about as it is an overflow of the mercy that is shown to us. He says that love must be sincere. It's only sincere when it's an overflow of a renewed mind that's responding to God's mercy. That's really rich about this part of the Bible. It interprets itself, doesn't it? Everything's hanging on that, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies over as living sacrifices. 
And then what about the verse that I've skipped over? Have a look at verse 12. He says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. As an individual, give yourself over to be transformed by Jesus, really to be like Jesus. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. From verse 14 onwards, Paul addresses the things that affect our relationships outside the church. And these verses don't need too much explanation or interpretation, but they're really where the rubber hits the road. The final part of our vision is to be a church that is going and sharing Jesus' love and helping others to do the same. This transformed life does a lot of that sharing. Now, this is not all that it means to share with outsiders. There are times when we're called to speak to outsiders. But this definitely is a fleshing out of what Jesus meant it to be salt and light in the world, or what Peter means when he calls us to live such good lives among the pagans. So this kind of love for enemy, humility and desire to bless people, this is really hard. How on earth could we do it? Well, like all these things, we're urged to do it in view of God's mercy. We're called to come out from the patterns of this world, be they demanding our rights or treading on people or getting what we want or seeking retribution, to really be people who find their enemy hungry and choose to feed them. And that will only happen when we remember that at one stage we ourselves were God's enemies and that he reached out to us to live in view of God's mercy. It was on my heart to share a message today that would encourage us and remind us of our purpose and vision as a church. The season that we're in, it tests us. It tests if we really own these truths, if we're really committed in these truths. And while today we finally get some movement in looking for a new pastor as we vote a, a committee or a, a, a selection, yeah, selection committee at this meeting in, in an hour or so, we finally get some moving to looking for someone to be our new pastor, let's be aware to not fall into a trap of thinking that we're looking for someone to be our saviour or messiah. The mission of our church remains to seek to grow in our love for Jesus, each other, our community, our world, and to help others do the same. It doesn't shift for the next period to be about finding a minister. That does not suddenly today become the mission for this church. Likewise, we've got a renovation project in the works. That is not the mission of this church. The mission isn't even to draw bigger crowds. On Paul's last service, we drew a huge crowd here. As good as all those things are, our mission is to live in view of God's mercy. And whatever form or shape that takes, that doesn't change. We're wanting to grow in our love for Jesus, to have that grand view of God's mercy shown to us in Him leading us to worship that is a transformed life.
loving each other with sincerity, loving those in our community with Christ's love, loving the world with the compassion of Jesus, and helping others to see the mercy of God, to lead them to that mercy, that they might learn to love the God who has first loved them, lest all they know is God's wrath. We're going to pray. Loving Father, give you great thanks for the mercy shown to us in Jesus. Father, help us to live in all parts of our life in view of that mercy. Lord, draw, out, draw us out of thinking with the pattern of this world, but Lord, give us a transformed mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.